This episode is brought to you by the American Institute of Architects' third annual I Look Up Film Challenge. Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm Emily Booter. And I'm John Fusco. It is June 8th, 2017, and on this week's show, the ultimate indie cinema camera and more updates from the Cinegear Expo, how to effectively promote your crowdfunding campaign, all things Wonder Woman, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Welcome to this week's show from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. As always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. Woohoo! It's an enthusiastic week here at No Film School. Starting with me, as you all know if you heard last week's show, I was very stoked to go to the opening weekend of Wonder Woman and help shatter box office records, and indeed, we did. It was the biggest opening weekend ever for a female director, raking in $103.1 million at the domestic box office alone. Compare that to Iron Man's $98.6 million, for example. But wait, there's more. The trend continued into Monday with $11.7 million in returns, or the second best take ever for any superhero movie in the month of June, behind 2013's Man of Steel, which made $12.6 million on that first Monday. They were in seats, too, shifting the typical 60-40 male-to-female superhero audience ratio to one where women made up 52% of ticket buyers. Very cool. Yeah. There is an audience of ladies for this stuff, Hollywood. And, you know, it is important that Jenkins is a woman, and these numbers may help move the needle for female directors helming studio pictures. But in the context of this show, it's even more pertinent to remember that Patty Jenkins has the heart and filmography of an indie filmmaker. Before Wonder Woman, her biggest credit was for 2003's Monster, an $8 million indie that won Charlize Theron an Oscar. Of course, several promising indie directors have been picked up to revitalize studio franchises, And as many outlets have pointed out, they rarely have to wait 14 years for the opportunity, as Jenkins did. But still, every time Hollywood gatekeepers recognize potential in indie directors, male or female, and back that up with dollars, we applaud them. Fast clap. And while I'm applauding, I have to give an extra, extra, extra big ups to Gal Gadot, because it was revealed earlier this week that she was pregnant for much of the movie's filming. Wonder Woman indeed. One more note about Patty Jenkins that will be of interest to you horrors out there. It was reported on Tuesday that she's now attached to direct one of the first original films for Shudder, the horror streaming service. And now it's time for a fun fact. Fun facts, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) What about our fun fact sound effect? Anyway, here's the fun fact that you've all been waiting for. The film called Rip Roar is based on a story written by Jenkins' husband, Sam Sheridan, who's also a former mixed martial arts fighter. I bring this up not only to congratulate Patty on her hot streak, but also to note that Shudder has joined the ranks of streaming platforms who are creating original content. And therefore, it's another place for you to pitch your genre films for possible financing. The company's first original production is actually coming out today. It's a horror documentary directed by Rodney Asher called Primal Screen, see what they did there, that examines the reasons why people are attracted to the things that scare them most. Rodney Asher also did that documentary about sleep apnea, no, sleep paralysis called uh, The Nightmare, which was very good. Is that the company, is Shudder the company that Jared Leto is also now the COO of? What? I didn't hear. I mean, I know it's the the premier like online horror streaming service, but has he come on board? I think he did. I think he's the COO now. 
Fact check it. Yeah. Fact check it, Fox I'm News. I'm calling for a, a truth check. Truth check. Das cuckoo ka choo, cuckoo ka boo. Hop, pop, pop, boo. Hey, hey, ha, ho. No, Fandor. Uh, it's Fandor. Checked. Still weird. <laughs> Still weird. So I actually have some news about streaming services. Yes. Um, <laughs> aren't you so, so we just don't vitalized get by enough that. streaming service news on this podcast, I don't think. We really don't. <laughs> Stream us the news, Emily. Okay. Live from the streaming hotbed. In an earlier episode of Indie Film Weekly, I actually mentioned Apple's foray into original programming. So this week, that finally came to fruition. At the company's Worldwide Developers Conference, Apple launched its first original programming series, Planet of the Apps. Hosted by DJ Zane Lowe and featuring Gwyneth Paltrow, Jessica Alba, Will I Am, and entrepreneur Gary Vaynerchuk as mentors to developers. It's essentially a shark tank for app developers because the mentors will be prepping the developers for pitches to Silicon Valley's big venture capital firm, Lightspeed Venture Partners. I'm sorry, you know I love the puns, but Planet of the Apps, like that's really bad even for me. Yeah, I think they took it one notch too far there. So this move is less of a boon to original programming than it is a thinly veiled ploy to get subscribers for Apple Music, the company's $10 a month streaming service, at which at 27 million subscribers is struggling to compete with Spotify's 50 million base. Of course, Planet of the Apps will be available exclusively on Apple Music, so you've got to sign up to see it. Honestly, I'm not really inclined to take this move very seriously until Apple makes a major development executive hire. Because for a while there, the former HBO president Michael Lombardo's name was, you know, shuffled around in the mix. But until Apple makes a commitment to original content, we can just kind of sit back and wait and see what happens. Okay, guys, I have some pretty ominous news for you this week. Ooh. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Halloween, not yet, but don't you wait. I'm prepping. The Dark Overlord is vowing to take over Hollywood. You can think of him as Voldemort's nerdy brother. So instead of parcel mouth, the Dark Overlord speaks Python, although semantically speaking, they sound kind of similar. Instead of killing in the name of dark arts, the Dark Overlord is holding Hollywood movies and TV shows for ransom. So today's target was a weird one. ABC's upcoming TV show, Steve Harvey's Thunderdome. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows whether that's what they had available or whether that was some sort of targeted message. We'll never know. According to a cyber criminal quoted by Motherboard, the Hacking Collective is comprised of three members. And at the end of April, it uploaded 10 episodes of the new season of Orange is the New Black, which Netflix hadn't set for release until tomorrow. After leaking the episodes, the Dark Overlord tweeted, quote, Who is next on the list? Fox, IFC, Nat Geo, and ABC. Oh, what fun we're going to have. We're not playing games anymore. And later they tweeted, Make no mistake, Hollywood is under assault. That's actually pretty creepy. It is pretty creepy. Um, they, but they did say that they're not trying to scare anyone. They are just actually trying to get excuse my language, shitloads of Bitcoin. Wait, they're not trying to scare anyone, but they call themselves the Dark Overlord? <laughs> cool, guys. Yeah. Um, another interesting tidbit is they actually were, one of the leaks, and I think it was the Orange is the New Black leak, was traced back to a production, a post-production house in Hollywood. Um, so yeah. Actually, I'm glad you mentioned that, because that's what really makes the story relevant to all of our listeners, all of you guys out there. 
is that, uh, you know, b- these big leaks aren't happening from the producers themselves. They're, they're not like hacking in to the production companies. They're generally hacking into the post houses and other kinds of areas like places your film might go outside of your direct control. So when you're looking at post houses and color correction places and VFX houses and that kind of thing, Definitely, it's it's the moment in time to be asking them uh, what their security procedures are for your work. You got to get that shit under lockdown. We were sad to learn of the passing of actor Peter Salas earlier this week at the impressive age of 96. He's most famous in his native England for playing the role of Norman Clegg on BBC's Last of Summer Wine, which is the longest running sitcom in British history and also Emily's saddest day. Cheese! <laughs> is, that a, is that Wallace and Gromit? You're a big Wallace and Gromit fan? Yeah, claymation, animals, uh, yeah. we absurdist humor. You guys, I humor. haven't even gotten to the Wallace and Gromit part. Oh, okay, we're Spoiler alert, audience, but it's great. Um, as you may have guessed from that little side note, we all probably know him best as the endearing voice of Wallace from Ardman Animation's Wallace and Gromit stop-motion movie series, a role which he didn't even take on until his 60s. This is most impressive to us here at Indie Film Weekly because of its backstory. According to the Guardian newspaper, Salas was originally approached for the role by Wallace and Gromit director Nick Park when Park was still a student, and he agreed to be involved in return for only a 50-pound donation to his chosen charity. Six years later, the first Wallace and Gromit short film, A Grand Day Out, was released and eventually nominated for an Oscar, and the rest is history. Peter Salas, thank you for supporting the dreams of young independent filmmakers. May you enjoy copious amounts of cheese wherever you are now. Probably on the moon. Cheese. And now here's Charles Hayne with some tech news fresh off uh, Cinegear in L.A. Yeah, Cinegear in L.A. Welcome back. Uh, thank you very much. I'm so glad to be back in uh, Brooklyn. But yeah, so Cinegear is the big tech news for film nerds this week. And uh, probably the biggest announcement of Cinegear is the new Panasonic AU-EVA1, uh, which is probably going to just be called the EVA1. And uh, they announced it at the Paramount Theater uh, 4 o'clock last Friday at Cinegear. So there's still some sketchy details. We, we know it's going to be dual ISO, and it's going to have an EF mount, but we don't know what dual ISO. Although if it matches the dual ISO of the Panasonic Varicam, that'll be fantastic. And uh, it'll have 2K slow motion up to 240 frames per second, but it'll also shoot 4K and 5.7K. And best of all, it's going to be a Panasonic, so you know the body will be really well designed and ergonomic, and the color will be stellar. Uh, Back in the DVX and HVX days, Panasonic owned the indie feature market, and they know they have to do a lot of work to get their mind share and market share back, and I think this is a real step in the right direction for them. Hopefully, this will be it. Uh, It'll be under $8,000, and man, the dual ISO and the Varicam is so good that if this does anything like it, and they claim it's an all-new sensor, so hopefully it will match or maybe even surpass the 5000 ISO in the Varicam. Uh, if you have clean 5000 ISO and a camera eight th- under $8,000, it's going to be a real uh, market leader. Uh, there was some other stuff coming out of uh, Cinegear as well. Uh, back in February, Fujifilm released their 18 to 55 CineZoom for under four grand, and they've just released the Companion, the 50 to 135, that matches with the wide zoom. Uh, it it's like 980 grams, which is amazing. The images are really beautiful. The only real drawback is that it only opens to a T29, although if you put it on a camera with 5,000 ISO, T29 is plenty. And uh, it, right now it's only E-mount, 
But if you're an E-mount shooter, so something like the FS7 or any of the little A Alpha Series cameras, uh, this is a real lens to look at. Uh, we had it here for a field test, and it's awesome. Uh, and then the other big tech news this week isn't from Cinegear, but it's from the WWDC, the Apple Worldwide Developer Conference. Uh, usually they focus mostly on software here, but this year they had a whole bunch of hardware stuff, including like, you know, a new speaker and things like that. But for filmmakers, a whole refresh throughout the computer line. So first, it's a little annoying that they refreshed the new MacBook Pro because the new MacBook Pro came out in October. So if you like bought it in November, seven months later, there's a new one with new processors. It's a little bit short for a refresh cycle. Um, also, it's like annoyingly inconsistent because Apple went like four years without refreshing uh, the old MacBook Pro. Like my 2013 MacBook Pro was faster than the 2016 MacBook Pro. Um, and now they've refreshed twice in a year. But if you bought in November, don't freak out. It's really not a major upgrade. It's just the new cabbie like processors, and they're not that much faster, and it's not worth getting that grumpy about. Um, the big news is the new iMac Pro. Pro users have been desperate for a Mac that has more graphics power, that can handle VR, can crank out high-resolution video in a way that, that the 2013 Mac Pro just can't. In a rare move, Apple likes to announce stuff and be like, shipping today or shipping next week. This time they announce stuff shipping December, which they don't do very often. If you configured it to the max, you can have a 16 gigabyte 11 teraflop video card, which ought to be great for 4K and beyond workflows. Um, the coolest feature for me is that it's going to have 10 gig Ethernet built in, which is really rare on a computer at this price point. Uh it used to be Apple was like the innovator who did stuff before everybody else. They haven't been that in a while, but building in 10 gig Ethernet feels like the old Apple. So uh, I don't expect a whole lot of indie filmmakers to buy it because it's going to be five to 10 grand. I probably will not buy one because it'll be five to 10 grand, but expect the post house where you work or the little production company where, where you work to start rolling these out throughout 2018. Cool. Thanks, Charles. And we'll be back after this break for Ask No Film School. This summer, the American Institute of Architects is presenting the third annual I Look Up Film Challenge. This contest invites architects and filmmakers to collaborate on films highlighting projects and architects that are helping to change communities for the better. This year's theme, Blueprint for Better, shines a light on the powerful social impact of architects and their work. See this year's kickoff film called Midtown A Blueprint for Better, and register for the I Look Up Film Challenge at ilookup.org by June 26th. Final films are due August 13th, 2017. So this week in Ask No Film School, Larry Stanley wrote to ask what are some good crowdfunding marketing services to use when raising money for a film project? To help answer that, I called Elise McCabe, Director of Narrative Film at Kickstarter. Outside the design and technology space, I'm not sure I'm particularly sold on the idea of using marketing services full stop. Um, I, I just think that the most important thing when you're, you know, when, when you want to bring other people onto your team is really that they have, uh, you know, a very, very specific knowledge um, and, uh, and not just a knowledge of, but also a care for your project. Um, they have a knowledge of your project, they care about it, and that they also, um, you know, are well connected within um, within film. And let's say, you know, your project is a 
a documentary with a particular kind of maybe a particular sort of social issue at its heart, but they also maybe have very good connections um, that relate to that subject. So I think, you know, that's the first thing is I would sort of, I would feel very skeptical about marketing services. I would feel um, doubly skeptical if uh, this is people that are approaching you after your um, crowdfunding campaign has already kicked off. I think that is, um, they are as close to scammers as as you can get. So I would definitely just like wholesale um, write that stuff off. Um, uh, there are full service campaign management companies um, who will work really closely with you as a filmmaker um, during the preparation and the execution of your campaign. And I, and I think there is something to be said for that. People who really know how to um, really know how to raise funds for films. Uh, we've worked, you know, we worked with closely with a number of them over the last few years. Um, and, and at Kickstarter, we we actually list them all on a part of our website, uh, which is called Kickstarter Experts. So it's kickstarter.com forward slash experts. And, uh, and there are some great companies there that will work with filmmakers, uh, some great ones that will work with design and technology projects, publishing projects. You know, they all have their kind of specialism. And, um, and so I, I, you know, that kind of, um, full engagement, uh, with a film project, I think can, can really work well. The other thing um, uh, that, that we have here at Kickstarter, which I think is a great resource, and, and even as a as a uh, you know an outreach lead, I actually consult it a lot, is our campus. So it's basically a kind of um, it's a sort of very large online forum. And one response I was I was just looking at uh, this morning is uh, it's just a it's a four part response. They advocate for PR agencies with access to blogs where your type of fan um, hangs out. So for us, that would be, you know, filmmaking blogs um, and give some advice on, you know, how much money or, or, or um, what percentage of your raise would be reasonable for them to ask. It uh, advises wholesale against um you know, uh, marketing services, um, saying that invariably none of them deliver enough new backers to offset the cost that they charge, so don't use them. And, and then, so secondarily, um, you know, writing to writing directly to blogs um, that your backers are likely to frequent. Um, you know, because they often have a you know a line which is like you know what have we been what have we noticed in crowdfunding this week? Um, you know, they do have a lot of requests in that respect, and it's not necessarily going to be bear an enormous amount of fruit, um, but it's but it's no bad thing. And then the fourth thing they kind of look at is targeted social ad buys. Um, I feel again a little skeptical within film. I think film is is a is a very kind of unique case where it is built on a, a combination of networks, personal relationships, and sort of deep interest in a specific subject, which is not necessarily easy to identify through kind of um, sort of social network algorithms. I know that a lot of people um, sort of agonize, how do I reach beyond my friends, my family, you know, my friends and family and my email list? And and Canvas has a couple of um, great articles about that as well. I know it's a, it can be a source of pain for people <laughs> to, to 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 try to reach beyond that first that sort of first concentric ring around themselves. Um, 
And, you know, I guess I would say, yeah, sure, like work with um, work with a couple of people, um, maybe who are close friends or collaborators who can extend your network, um, you know, whether they whether you pay them or whether they are, you know, producers on a project. But I think it is it, almost to reach beyond your friends and family, you sometimes even have to start with your friends and family. Maybe, you know, for your second and third campaign, you actually are saying, I don't want you to contribute money to my campaign, but I do want you to commit to, um, you know, to help me with my outreach. And maybe that's a way to sort of um, leverage their support without um, demanding their dollars, you know. If I if I might sum up, it sounds like what I'm hearing is if you're going to use your limited resources to hire some help for your campaign, avoid generic marketing agencies and try to carefully vet people, you know, individuals who uh, really understand your project and the scene and the sort of audience you're trying to reach. I think that is spot on, Liz. Thank you so much, Elise, and thanks for the question, Larry. Good luck. So on to movies opening this week. Coming your way to Amazon Prime Instant is 20th Century Woman, written and directed by Mike Mills. It was nominated for an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay, and indeed it was an extremely strong screenplay. It's the story of a teenage boy, played by Lucas Jade Zuman, and his mother, Annette Benning, who live in a boarding house with 30-somethings, played by Greta Gerwig and Billy Crudup, in the free-loving community that was Santa Barbara in 1979. Mills based the film on his experiences growing up in that very situation as a young boy with a feminist mother. If you've seen Mills' previous work, beginners in particular, you know he's got a knack for writing dialogue. But part of what makes 20th Century Woman so uproariously funny and human is that Mills consulted, yes, women on the dialogue and characters, oftentimes friends of his who lived a similar youth. As a result, every single character in this film is multidimensional, with his or her own idiosyncrasies, inside humor, and deeply relatable flaws. It's a really enjoyable watch, a very fully fleshed out movie, and I highly recommend it. How many times have you seen it, Em? Twice. Wow. And a film I highly recommend is also out now on Amazon Prime Instant. It's called I Am Not Your Negro, and it's one of the most powerful and timely docs of this past year. This Oscar-nominated documentary by Raoul Peck absolutely gutted me. It imagines how writer James Baldwin's magnum opus would have been realized if he'd not died only 30 pages into writing it. The book was about the lives and murders of three of Baldwin's closest friends, the civil rights leaders Medgar Evers, Malcolm X, and Martin Luther King Jr. It's not an easy watch, but one of Baldwin's own quotes sums up my feelings about the film. Quote, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. I interviewed the film's editor, Alexandra Strauss, which was especially interesting because the entire film is made up of archival footage with voiceover by Samuel L. Jackson. So her role as editor was really significant to how the project turned out. I second that recommendation. I third it. I haven't seen it, but I also recommend it. I think Going in li- blind. Yeah, I think you'll like it, John. And coming to Netflix on June 13th is Oh Hello on Broadway. Now, we don't single out comedy specials very often on the show, but since Netflix is releasing an onslaught of them this year, I definitely want to highlight this one as one to check out. Usually I put comedy specials on if I want to take a nap, but don't do that for this one. I saw Oh Hello on Broadway in person last fall, and it was honestly the best piece of live comedy slash theater slash whatever I've seen in my entire life. Wow, and you're a trained actor. I've seen a lot of stuff, and like this was really fresh 
Um, half of the show is improvised, and then the other half is this really, you know, uh, loosely structured sort of story um, that allows room for improvisation. Uh, if you're not familiar with the premise of the show, it's it stems from two comedians, Nick Kroll and John Mulaney, who play two elderly Upper West Side roommates named Gil Faison and George Sank Eagland, respectively. <laughs> who have their own cable access TV show called Too Much Tuna. Oh my God, it's hilarious already. Yeah, they're, uh, they've been these characters for, I think, like decades. Like, it's something they both started off uh, doing at very young age together. I feel like all it's missing is Steve Brule. Uh, yeah, it's yeah, it's definitely like a sketch. Com- it started from sketch comedy. Um, but as I said, the play is largely improvised, and every night they would have a different guest on the show. Uh, this is the Broadway show to get pranked with a sandwich that would have entirely too much tuna. It's really, really funny. And if you want to see two actors that are able to fully inhabit their characters to the point where they can just think like them and spout out whatever would come to the top of their mind in that given situation, you definitely need to check out Oh Hello. I can't wait to see it again. They were guests in character on my other favorite podcast besides this one, Two Dope Queens. And like, they're sort of elderly white guy interaction with the two young black comedian hosts was so funny i was like i was like going crazy in the subway and people were like moving away from me because i was (laughs) laughing so hard they don't hold back that's for sure on the total other side of the spectrum julie dash's modern classic daughters of the dust is finally coming to netflix on june 10th though it's been in the library of congress national film registry as a national treasure since 2004 The film is set in 1902 and narrated by an unborn child. It tells the story of three generations of Gullah women on the sea islands off the coast of South Carolina and Georgia, where African traditions were maintained well into the 20th century. It's considered a seminal work of African-American cinema, and shockingly, it's the first feature film directed by an African-American woman that was distributed theatrically in the United States. And this was in 1991. I was, like, floored to learn that fact. And coming to theaters on June 9th on Friday is... I'm so excited for this one. Me too. You don't like horror movies, though. <laughs> what do you mean? I'm the one that doesn't like oh, horror movies. Oh, you don't movies. like horror movies? Wait, are what? you serious? We've, that's like a running theme you on have, this show. But Emily's got the whole like finger rating thing. But I like exclusively watch horror movies. You exclu- But well, you kind of watch them. And also <laughs> melodramas. <laughs> well, that's not true. I don't exclusively watch, exclusively watch them, but I watch most of them. Okay. Well, <laughs> I believe you. And maybe we could see this together. Yeah. Anyways, the movie is It Comes at Night, and it's Trey Edward Schultz's second, his sophomore feature. His first film was Cretia, which he made in just nine days with multiple members of his family as cast. And it was really one of the biggest indie hits of 2015. And I have to say that there were elements of Cretia that were very horror-like. Yes, totally. In terms of the mise-en-scene. And A24 picked up on that, too. Uh, his new movie, It Comes at Night, is one of the first to be financed by A24, and we imagine they gave him a whole new world of possibilities with that nice little budget to play around with. There's a lot of mystery surrounding what the actual plot will be. I don't know, maybe you've heard more about it than I have. I have. But, well, I don't want to hear about it. (laughs) So I'll just say, we're pretty sure it has something to do with an apocalyptic zombie situation. Am I right on that at all? Yeah, you're right on that. Okay, fact check. Do the zombies come at night? Yeah, unfortunately. So, secure within a desolate home, as an unnatural threat terrorizes the world, a man has established a tenuous domestic order with his wife and son, but this will soon be put to test when a desperate young family arrives seeking refuge. I will tell you that a still from this film 
really kind of describes everything. There's have you seen the still where there's a couple, the woman's on top and she's like vomiting black goop into his mouth. No. Okay. Yep. <laughs> That's what to expect. So I, Sign me up. Kind of like a it's kind of like a pandemic thing then. Yes. That's it what is. I think I meant by like zombie apocalypse. Sort of like an infection based movie. I actually was about to order the the game Pandemic. I don't know if you've heard about it. Have I heard game. of it? Yeah. I own I own Pandemic and Pandemic Legacy. And oh wow! Pandemic play, dude. Pandemic Le- Legacy is a crazy game. Let me okay. tell you. Wow. Do we you want to hear date. about it? Do we have time to? Can we go see it comes <laughs> at night and then play Pandemic afterwards? Yeah, we could do that. <laughs> That'd be scary. Um, okay, I won't describe what Pandemic Legacy is. If you're a board game person, look it up because it's awesome. The movie stars Joel Edgerton, Christopher Abbott, and Riley Keough. Also coming out in theaters in a limited fashion and then rolling out over the next month or so is Night School, directed by Andrew Kahn. This is a very timely documentary that follows three adult night school students determined to graduate from their high school in Indianapolis, despite the fact that the city has one of the lowest graduation rates in the country. I think it's a moment when a lot of people around the world are trying to understand low-income America, and this film is a really up-close glimpse. I really enjoyed it when I saw it at Tribeca, and in fact, I was quoted in the new trailer from Oscilloscope with the incredible... I know. You guys, you knew me when. Um, With the incredibly wise words, quote, deeply affecting, end quote. (laughs) I've never heard that one before on a trailer. I love that so much. (laughs) So yeah, now I finally feel like a real film writer. And when I interviewed Andrew, we talked a lot about trust building as an outsider with him as a white filmmaker and the school he filmed at being 92% African American. He said, quote, I think a lot of them never really had a white friend. A lot of times I would go to places and they'd be like, who's this cop? So the interview contains a lot of advice useful for any documentary filmmaker about navigating situations like that where you're really kind of the outsider. And finally, this is one of the first times I've been able to announce on the show a VR release. So Zero Days VR is coming to Oculus and Samsung VR uh, today. It's a companion piece to Alex Gibney's feature-length documentary Zero Days about cyber warfare, but it takes you places that only VR could, like inside a computer virus and an NSA whistleblowing operation. I saw the project at Sundance and had two of its creators, Yasmin Alayat and Eli Zananiri, on a fascinating podcast roundtable discussion called Why VR is Not Filmmaking. Here's an excerpt from that show. It's Yasmin Alayat talking about why a filmmaker might choose to work in VR. For me, it's always about um, um, trying to chase those stories or find those stories that really can't be told in any other way and then finding ways to support that story in, in um, uh, using the late, different types of tools or different types of technology. And I feel like that intersection is where these exciting types of projects happen. Um, and so something for like Zero Days, it, it was a the perfect conger- convergence of, of, of the form and, and the story. Like it was, per- I, it's the perfect story for VR and not necessarily that it has to always be VR for the next project. Um, I would say that's sort of my approach. It's like, what is the best service of this type of story and what is the best way to tell it that is uh, in a new way? And now moving on to upcoming deadlines for grants, contests, festivals, you name it, anything that has a deadline. We kind of ran out of June grant deadlines. So here are some rolling deadlines for you for this month. Uh, And this is a big one. The Sundance Documentary Film Fund has their rolling deadline. So you can, you know, apply whenever but we wanted to highlight it. 
The Sundance Documentary Fund provides grants to filmmakers worldwide for projects that display artful film language, effective storytelling, originality and feasibility, contemporary cultural relevance, and potential to reach and connect with its intended audience. There's a development grant, which goes up to $20,000, a production post-production grant, which goes up to $40,000, and an audience engagement grant, which goes up to $20,000. That's kind of a weird name for a grant. What it constitutes is basically it provides previously granted projects funding for strategic audience and community engagement campaigns. So something that will get your community involved. And also with a rolling deadline is the Film Independent Sloan Distribution Grants. If you have a nearly completed or finished narrative film with a leading character that is a scientist, engineer, or mathematician, this grant could be for you. So the Sloan Distribution Grant is a $50,000 grant awarded by Film Independent to a film that is entering its distribution phase. Eligible films must depict themes, stories, and characters grounded in real science, technology, or economics. No fake science here, folks. But if you have a pandemic movie, maybe you can make it happen. That's going to be hatched after our board game. Mm Mm-hmm. And now moving on to festival deadlines. The Calgary International Film Festival has their deadline on June 14th. It takes place in Calgary from September 20th to October 1st. This is the extended deadline, so it's one of the last chances. It is one of the movie makers' 50 festivals worth your entry fee, as well as being Academy Award qualifying for shorts. And if you're a citizen of Alberta, take note. It's free for you to enter. I feel like that list of Movie Maker's 50 festivals worth the deadline actually has like 900 festivals on it. I was just thinking the same thing. It <laughs> doesn't. We, it's we just me it like picking every... out. Yeah, I pick out the ones that are on that festival because it would You're make cherry picking. that list because mm-hmm. it would make sense for our audience to want to apply to festivals that are worth the entry fee. Maybe we should just call this section <laughs> festival deadlines for festivals worth the entry fee. What do you think? Yeah, that sounds like a really good name. Yeah. Well, you've got another one coming up next. What's the, what's the next one? The next one is the Savannah Film Festival, which has a deadline on June 15th. It takes place in Savannah, Georgia from October 28th to November 4th, 2017. And guess what? Like we were saying about the other film festival, this one is also one of Movie Maker Magazine's 50 festivals worth your entry fee. It is also one of the few film festivals that has been founded by an arts college And it showcases the best independent filmmaking from feature-length films to two-minute shorts. The festival awards best-of category awards in every category, as well as the HBO Films $5,000 Best Student Film Prize. And another thing to note is that if you apply to this film festival and you get in, all accepted competition films receive travel and accommodations. That's a pretty good deal. Yeah. And... (laughs) Emily really wants to do this one. I really want to do this one. It's near and dear to my heart because it is where my heart was born and raised. Mill Valley Film Festival. Yes, that is right. Mill Valley, California has a deadline of June 16th. Um, Mill Valley is, I don't know if you know about it, it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. It's like 15 minutes from San Francisco and it's nestled in this little fairy magical mountain um, that doesn't seem like it's near a metropolitan area. Um it is also the rival hometown to John Fusco, which, are they actually rivals? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fuck Tam. Oh, we got some Northern California. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> See, that's the difference between Redwood kids and Tam kids, is that we know how to insult. <laughs> Do I have to separate you two? This festival, in my experience attending it, um, is pretty big on international film it's also big on American film, and it has a knack for spotting emerging talent as well as drawing legendary artists. 
Um, it accepts short and feature work in the following categories, narrative, documentary, experimental, animation, children's film, and youth produced. And I actually had my high school documentary screen in the youth produced uh, category. So that was awesome. It was called I Generation, and it was about Berkeley being uh, Berkeley students being too narcissistic to protest anymore. Doesn't seem to be the case anymore. Yep. Thank goodness. Good I was job. proven wrong. <laughs> no, I think it was your documentary that inspired <laughs> Oh, me. yeah, that's true. And uh, just in case you were worried, it is also one of the film festivals worth the entry fee by Movie Maker Magazine. Also, another fun fact about Mill Valley is that I worked there when I lived in the Bay Area doing print traffic, and it was a really, really hard job. What's print traffic? Yeah, you would ask that. Because I am old and you are young. <laughs> Another running theme on this show. I generation. Print traffic um, is responsible for physically moving the film reels between the different theaters where the film is playing and keeping track of all of them in their different canisters and like making sure the right film is in the right place. And that shit is heavy. I'm imagining this cartoon of you just like scrambling between <laughs> theaters. <laughs> That's actually a lot what it was like. But I learned a lot there and the people were really nice and it's an excellent festival. And finally, our weekly words of wisdom segment, which I will kick off Um except I'm going to talk about an article that Emily wrote. I think this was one of my favorite interviews from Cannes that she did, um, and it was with the director and subject of Filmworker, which looks like an amazing documentary about Stanley Kubrick's little-known right-hand man, Leon Vitali, who dedicated his entire life to assisting the director. Vitali was intimately involved in every single aspect of production on Kubrick's films, and one area where he had some kind of counterintuitive advice was in casting. He said that when he and Kubrick cast roles, they never sent out character descriptions. Quote, we didn't want to box ourselves in, and that's sometimes how we found some very original people. You would never have thought of casting them, but by the time the film finished, you couldn't think of anyone else for the role. End quote. He gave the example of Gunnery Sergeant Hartman in Full Metal Jacket, played by Lee Ermey. The pair went to Ermey originally for, for military advice, and they were casting for extras, but when they met him, they knew he was the one. Another benefit of this open-minded approach is that it could help you get more authentic dialogue in your script. Like in the case of Ermey, Vitali credited him for almost all the language in the barrack scenes. So Emily's interview is full of gems like that, and I encourage you to check it out on nofilmschool.com. You'll never think of the assistant role in a film production in the same way after you read this. Okay, my turn. Uh, mine isn't on the site, <laughs> which, uh, you know, I think that's okay. Um, it's good It's good to have more resources in your life than just No Film School. No Film School should be a big, big resource in your life. Primary. You're allowed to, like, read other stuff if you want to. Um, I'm so I'm currently rereading uh, Robert Edmund Jones's book, The Dramatic Imagination, which was something I was assigned in college to read. Um, Jones was an American scenic lighting and costume designer who was a master of production design throughout the entirety of his life before he died in 1954. This book was written in 1941 and is considered to be the definitive work on modern stage design in the first half of the 20th century. And there's gold in it all over the place. Um, initially, I was struck by a passage that had a lot to do with what I was talking about in last week's podcast episode about encouraging your actors to find their own, uh, to make their own decisions and sort of find their own journey uh, within, you know, the story that you've provided them with. 
But then I saw this other passage and it really struck me because this book was written sort of before motion picture was a big deal. A lot of what he says about theater and like set design and production design in the theater can definitely be applied to production design in film. In an early passage, he actually predicts the rise and value of movies over theater, stating, motion pictures are our thoughts made visible and audible. They flow in a swift succession of images, precisely as our thoughts do, and their speed with their flashbacks, like sudden uprushes of memory and their abrupt transitions from one subject to another, approximates very closely the speed of our thinking. They have the rhythm of the thought stream and the same uncanny ability to move forward or backward in space or time, unhampered by the rationalizations of the conscious mind. They project pure thought, pure dream, pure inner life. And I like that. I like that too. Me three. So my words of wisdom from this week were from a cinematographer who I met at Cannes. He was there with a film called How to Talk to Girls at Parties. Um, It was a John Cameron Mitchell movie. And he was saying that there was no real visual through line that defines the projects he shot. Um, They're as diverse as Mad Men, Hedwig and the Angry Inch, Rabbit Hole, All is Lost, Margin Call. And DeMarco has a reason for that. Instead of imposing his vision on a movie, he lets the movie talk to him. Here's a quote from DeMarco. You see people doing the same shots, the same lighting, over and over, regardless of the movie. If you look at all the movies I've done, they have very different looks and very different styles. What's my style? I'm a slave to the movie. I always say, let the movie talk to you. I want to do dollies and cranes and outrageous shots. But you know what? Your movie will be better if you let it tell you what it needs. I have the joy of experimenting every time. So he gave a bunch of other great technical advice, but something that I found very interesting and slightly controversial was that he basically advised DPs if they wanted to do um, interesting and groundbreaking work to never get married and, and never buy a house. So this is exactly what he said. He actually stole the advice from the departed Harris Savides, who shot The Game and American Gangster, Don't get married, don't have kids, and don't get a mortgage. If you don't have a house, a spouse, or a child, you're not very financially tied down, and you can take on riskier projects. Important words from No Film School. (laughs) (laughs) You heard it here first. (laughs) And a couple little shout-outs to round out the show. We are really lucky here in New York because there's a ton of fantastic indie film events going on right now. As the Brooklyn Film Fest wraps up this weekend, the Human Rights Watch Film Festival begins on June 9th and runs through the 18th. If you're in town, this is a great opportunity to catch some of the most outstanding festival films we've covered since Sundance this year, including Eric Leung's The Blood is at the Doorstep. Hi, Eric. I know you listen to the show. Matthew Heinemann's City of Ghosts and Tonislav Hristov's The Good Postman. And I want to wish a very happy birthday to our resident drone cinematographer, no film school tech writer, and all-around cutie pie, Randall Asulto, on Sunday the 11th. Happy birthday. And on Monday, as always, our next interview podcast comes out. If you're interested in how to tell stories of people very different from you without misrepresenting them, I think you'll really enjoy the conversation I had with co-directors and the producer of Berlin, Tribeca, and Hot Ducks film, For Akeem. Like Night School that I mentioned earlier, this is a case of white filmmakers making a doc about the black experience. Here, it's Emmy Award-winning duo Jeremy S. Levine and Landon Van Sost telling the coming-of-age tale of a remarkable black teenage girl, Dajay Shelton, near Ferguson, Missouri, where fellow black teenager Michael Brown had been famously shot and killed by police during production on the film. 
So in the podcast, they are joined by the film's black female producer, Iabo Boyd, and we have a really candid and honest discussion about documentary ethics and more. So look out for that on Monday. Meanwhile, please subscribe to the No Film School podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And uh, you can read about everything we talked about in this week's show, plus lots, lots more about the craft of filmmaking on nofilmschool.com. Meanwhile, please stay in touch. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. At E.L. Booter. At Jim John Jim. And of course, Pandemic. we're all <laughs> at No Film School. Thanks, guys. See you next week. 